Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Technology companies today face many simultaneous challenges, security, supply chain, and regulatory threats that may change the way their business works and how their devices run. Members of Congress and the administration and the Federal Trade Commission have taken actions to mandate that firms allow their devices to be repaired by anyone, not just a licensed repair agent, at a potential high cost to product quality and individual security. Vulnerabilities through cyber attack, ransomware, and data breaches are on the rise, and it's important that the companies who make the devices consumers enjoy, such as automobiles, computers, medical and mobile devices, and the home network systems that are designed with an integrated, simple user interface, that are behind the user screens in the hardware parts and proprietary software constructed by thousands of hours of engineering and specific patented designs from the original manufacturer are able to protect their devices. Makers of these hardware devices and software, especially applications or apps, need to be able to protect their devices and software from harms from outside actors and their unintended consequences by third parties. And while 5G is getting off the ground with next generation products, the technology firms that make these devices we all use are facing massive semiconductor chip shortages. How are the large technology companies managing these potential regulatory challenges? And can the potential changes lawmakers are trying to mandate for technology companies be a possible contaminating point to the trust we have in the digital ecosystem? Today's guest is John Godfrey. John is the acting head of the U.S. Public Affairs in the Washington office at Samsung. He was formerly Samsung's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and also previously worked in government affairs at Pioneer Electronics and Sony. Don was a tech and science policy researcher before moving to the private sector. He specializes in 5G and broadband, but is well-versed on other issues important to Samsung, such as right to repair and semiconductors. John joins the podcast to discuss how Samsung views possible new right to repair regulations, congressional funding for semiconductor production, and the growth and spread of 5G wireless technology in the U.S. and beyond. John also shares his outlook on the state of global tech industry competition in general and reveals some cutting-edge features of Samsung's newest products. Well, John, welcome to Explain to Shane. We have a lot to discuss today, but I really want to get started with an issue that is front and center with the Biden administration, executive order on competition on right to repair. The FTC suggested that the ability to not take your device anywhere you wish, increases costs, limits consumer choice, impacts consumer rights, etc. I actually wrote a blog on this the other day. And when I was researching it, I realized the word that seemed to be missing in a lot of that was licensed or unlicensed. So it isn't that there are places that are necessarily like, I don't have to walk into a Samsung store, there'll be other places I can do this. But the idea that I could walk into anywhere, and I do have one around the corner from my house, and uh, and hand them something, and whether or not they are actually know what they're doing is, I guess, what I would say goes through my head. So, can you walk us through the right to repair issue and kind of give us your thoughts on it? Sure. Consumers are already fully have a right to get their products repaired, and I think what consumers want is for the repairs to be convenient and affordable. You know, obviously, warranty repairs are completely free. So a lot of this is discussing out-of-warranty repair for that to be affordable, which means there's competition and multiple people competing to provide a good price on those repairs. I want them to be effective so that the repairs work, and they want them to be safe. And all of that is really important. And I think the advocates for 
government intervention in the repair service market, or, or what I call re- repair regulation advocates, what they are looking for is for the government to intervene in the market and ask for manufacturers to take extra steps, I guess, that are, are outside the free market. And that is to, they're asking for manufacturers like Samsung to provide parts and business information to effectively anyone who asks for it, who would then use that to provide repairs to consumers. And that would certainly make repair more convenient if theoretically everyone could have access to exactly the same information and parts. But it, I'd have real questions about whether that would be safe or effective because modern products are complicated and it takes some training to know how to repair them properly. So I'll tell you how Samsung approaches this. We have a wide range of convenient and affordable repair options for consumers, starting from Samsung in-house repair, where you can mail in a product to Samsung or carry it into one of our repair centers. Or you can work with a Samsung certified technician. We have an authorized network of repair providers. It could be mom and pop shops. It could be chains, places that can come to your house or that you can carry your product to. A really prominent example of that is a company called You Break I Fix. There are hundreds of stores around the country that will fix your Samsung phone, and they are fully authorized by Samsung and have the ability to perform you know, authorized repairs. But then we recognize that the repair advocates want even more choice and even more competition than that. So in the last year, we've also opened up a, another alternative, which is a program we call independent service providers. And well, earlier this year, we announced a partnership with a company called Batteries Plus. And Batteries Plus has franchises all over the country who are are now, they have access to authentic, genuine Samsung parts like batteries or screens or circuit parts and motors and other things on the condition that their repair people have to be certified under the the cellular industry, the CTIA certification program for excellence in repair. And that means that the repair people have gone through a training course and achieved certification that they know what they're doing. So we do that because we really don't want consumers to be exposed to danger from using counterfeit parts. So it's good that they are getting genuine parts. It's good that they're getting a qualified, competent repair by someone who's certified so that they're not leaving the product, you know, vulnerable to a security flaw or leaving the product in a state where it might break or, or, you know, worst case, catch on fire or be physically dangerous and even introduce problems with customer satisfaction. I, I don't know if you've seen the ads for Samsung phones where people drop their phone in the water or they pour water on their phone and it continues to work. The phones for a number of years now have been water resistant. Pairing a water resistant phone properly takes some training. And if you do it wrong, then your phone won't be water resistant anymore. And that's one of the things that the consumer paid for when they bought it. So it's really important that they get it repaired by somebody who knows what they're doing. 
you just reminded me of how many times I've walked in with a watch and they're like, well, if we fix this and you don't take it back to the manufacturer, we're going to break the seal and you won't be able to dive in it. And I was like, I can dive in this watch. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So it may I don't be okay. dive, but okay. Maybe okay yeah. for some people, but you know, sometimes people's phones go for a dive without them. Right. And then you, you want to pick it back up from the bottom of the pool and, and have it still work. I had much more appreciation for all the engineering that went under that watch. But the other thing is, my head goes to a little darker place because we have been recently through, you know, learning about Pegasus and we've had so many malware issues. And I always feel like the criminal elements looking for any way in, you know, the any way into the process and they're going to weasel their way into the entire network is my biggest fear. And sometimes it's true. So the other part of this, I think, is you mentioned licensed parts, but also it seems like they want to have access to the schematics. There's some a lot of IP protection and perhaps you know copyrightable items that are in there that might be a concern as well. Yeah, that's right. I'm not expert enough on how to do hacking to know exactly how much information you would need to get from a manufacturer before you could, could hack the device. But I do know that physical access to the, the inner parts of a product could be a television, a phone, a washing machine. Physical access gives a bad actor more opportunity than they have if they are just remotely accessing the product. So hopefully if you take your product to a a shady repair place at the mall, they're not introducing some some cybersecurity backdoor into your product intentionally. Hopefully they're not those kinds of people. But you pointed out in your blog, some of these things might happen unintentionally. I mean, I guess you could imagine downloading an app that you think is going to help you perform the repair, but it's actually from a nefarious source and introduces some malicious element. So it's always safest to go to the manufacturer's authorized network for repair. But we, you know, we've heard what consumers are calling for and what the advocates are calling for. We have expanded our our options beyond the authorized network, which is already big, include these non-authorized places as well that we provide genuine parts to just on the condition that their technicians have some training, that independent service provider. We're doing all of this without being told by the government to do so. It's We and other companies in the industry really are trying to expand repair options and repair competition for consumers, as long as it is safe and effective. So for the consumer element, do you walk in with your sadly broken device? You probably was self-inflicted. I drop mine occasionally. And ask if they're a licensed dealer. Is that what I'm asking for? What is the term of art to make sure that you're dealing with somebody who's on the up and up? Well, the term of art you're looking for probably is authorized, an authorized repair provider. But You don't have to go to an authorized repair provider. If you go to one in our ISP network, the independent service provider, they're not authorized. Samsung doesn't warrant their work, but they, what you ask them is, do you have genuine Samsung parts and are you trained and certified? And if they say yes to those things, then, then that's a good, a good, good to go alternative. One thing just having, being on this whole topic, it reminded me of, you know, I'm one of those people that, Every time there's a new version of something, I always like to know what they change. Why is this, you know, and, and whenever there's an, it's almost like the model of the car. It's like, well, they change the headlights. You can tell that, but a lot of times on the phone, you can't tell unless they actually change what I call the real estate, right? Which is like you move the headphone jack, or in some cases, the headphone jack has been removed or the power element, you know, becomes bigger or smaller. Or the, 
it becomes yours. You have a folding one. I still can't, you know, hope those are going well. Those are so cool. I love playing with that. But the idea is like, so there's, there's so much going on every time you, you know, improving this. One of the things I imagine that's going on there is also you're improving sort of security around the device because of these concerns. What have you guys done in that area lately? Well, Samsung has worked a lot on security for many years. I guess part of the advantage that, that we bring is as a hardware manufacturer, we make our own hardware. We don't outsource that to someone else. That includes the chips that are in the phone. Some of those we source from outside, but some of them we manufacture for ourselves. We have been able to create sort of a hardware-rooted element of trust in every phone, in a tamper-proof and also tamper-evident part of the phone, so that if anyone tries to replace the operating system in the phone, root the phone, break through the security of the phone, then the secure elements of the phone will, you know, will stop working. And that's really important for things like for a consumer, the like your biometric information, for example, is stored in that tamper-proof extra secure element in the root of the phone. And the phone will do a secure boot up so that if it detects that it has been tampered with, it, it won't boot up. And then above that, there are additional enhancements to the Android operating system that we've worked on with the Android community. I guess the best, you know, the best marker of the results of all of that work is that a large proportion of our flagship phones have been certified by the Department of Defense as meeting the common criteria security guidelines that are required, for example, for phones to carry top secret information. That's almost unique. You really are putting the nail in the BlackBerry coffin, huh? Because <laughs> 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 I think that was the only reason why those guys, I think they're not even a hardware provider anymore. They're doing something else with BlackBerry. But for years, even though I miss that keyboard, I can type with the devil on that keyboard. But, you know, the idea that you'd always look, if somebody showed up with a BlackBerry, you, you figured they were with a three-letter agency or the Department of Justice. There's <laughs> like nobody was walking around with those unless they were mandated by the government. Well, I remember the first time I ever saw one, and I do think that was... Nice branding to call it BlackBerry because the little the little keys looked like little bumps on a BlackBerry. All those years, and so I never can, noticed that. <laughs> yeah, you can type with your type with your thumbs, but I you know that. nowadays you can drag your finger from key to key, and that's how I type on my phone, and I find it very convenient. That's helpful. The other part about this has been such a discovery, especially during COVID, about chips and all the semiconductor stuff that's going on, and you know it's just the the supply chain management of this has been fascinating to learn about, but I realize it's a core element. Almost everything that you all do is the whole semiconductor industry. And I believe you have a place in Austin. Not place. I feel like, it's like a, you have an Airbnb in Austin that just does. We got trips. a little place, um, <laughs> place in Austin. You should, you should drop in next time you're right. in town. But I've, I mean, learning about the semiconductor, just the entire process and how once that you start what they call a fab, you know, they just don't, if you, it's there, it's going to go. It's 24 seven, 365. You know, all the things that it takes. So knowing that everybody's wanting these chips, you guys have been on the forefront of trying to make sure that the supply chain is much more robust for a long time. How is that going? Sam, yeah, Samsung has had a factory in my hometown, Austin, Texas, since the 1990s, actually, and been through multiple generations of reinvestment to a combined total of over $17 billion in investment to Austin. And it is, it originally was a memory chip factory and then it changed over to making logic chips, which are 
more cutting edge, that's more advanced types of manufacturing, and now is a what's called a foundry factory. And so what I think would be useful for people to know about the semiconductor market and where the shortages today are is largely in logic chips rather than memory chips. And there are not that many companies that actually manufacture logic chips. Most of the companies you've heard of design logic chips, but they outsource the manufacturing to someone else. They don't own their own fabs. Fabs are incredibly expensive, and it's incredibly complicated technology to be able to etch the semiconductor wafers properly. So Samsung is the number two foundry company in the world after TSMC in Taiwan. And we, at our Austin plant and at other factories that we have in our foundry business in the world, receive designs from customers and manufacture to their specification. That part of the business is, you know, is very important to the overall semiconductor supply chain. And because there's a shortage right now, it is really, really urgent for investment to continue in building additional foundry capacity. One of our top priorities in Washington, D.C., and the team I lead, is legislation that's before Congress this year. It was originally in a piece called the CHIPS Act, and it's moving through the legislative sausage-making process. It includes grants for the building of semiconductor manufacturing in the United States and also investment tax credits for U.S. investment in semiconductor manufacturing. And this would be this will be really important to diversifying the U.S. supply chain and, and having at least some of it be here in the United States, helping alleviate that, that supply. So we hope Congress will move fast on completing that. Samsung has, you know, we have that factory in Austin, I should mention. We've also announced this year that we will be making an additional semiconductor manufacturing investment in the United States. Maybe you've heard of that. We've said we'll be spending $17 billion on a new cutting-edge semiconductor facility, location to be determined, but Texas and Arizona and New York State are all in the running, and you know we really look forward to bringing that additional investment into the United States. I'm fascinated by the whole thing. We'll continue to watch to see which state wins. Well, one of the big benefactors of all of this is the advent of 5G, which you were very kind at one of my events. And I was like, would you please bring one of the boxes so people can explain this isn't this gigantic monolith? There was all this talk about refrigerators back in the day. Like, it's going to look like a refrigerator on the side of the, you know, and then you were like, brought the silk condensed box and said, nope, this is what you're dealing with. And now I feel like we've talked it to death and now it's just, it's just kind of going into the process and we don't think as much about it. You and I probably do, but <laughs> we've talked it to life. We Right. So how how's 5G going? It's alive and well. It's going fast. You know, look, we're we're in a stage in the evolution of any new technology where the initial excitement over something that's brand new has died down. And now people are impatient to see the revolution happen, to see the new applications come along. The stage we're in now is operators are deploying 5G networks. Even during the pandemic, it kept up full speed. And the U.S. operators have been deploying 5G. Other countries, you know, South Korea, the, the home market for, for Samsung. And, and there's been a whole lot of 5G deployment in China as well. Although sometimes we're not exactly sure about the statistics coming from there. But there's a 
kind of a, a global rates on the Europeans are a little bit behind in deploying 5G, but we hope to help some of the European operators get going there too. So 5G is being built out. You, you could say it's coast to coast today in the United States. All three carriers have 5G available, at least in populated areas nationwide. But the problem is that it's in the low band spectrum where there's not a whole lot of capacity. And so, yes, it's 5G, but the data rates are not terribly greater than 4G. You may get some of the other benefits of 5G when they, when they finish deploying the core network elements. You get some of the low latency that 5G provides, but not the high data rates and the low bands. What's happening now is mid-band is being deployed nationwide. T-Mobile already has it through their Sprint network that they acquired when they bought Sprint. Verizon and AT&T bid heavily in the C-band auction, which is in the mid-band. They're now deploying that equipment, and they will be able to turn it on live in December of this year, 200 megahertz of additional spectrum for the early licenses and more two years later on. And I think that is when consumers will begin to see across all three national carriers a big speed jump in 5G. and what will that mean for the market? I think it'll mean that companies who want to develop new applications and new services that take advantage of 5G will really be able to do it then because there will be the ability to reach consumers all across the country with high speeds. 5G is already in the phones. Samsung has really democratized 5G on the consumer side, not not just our high-end phones, but our more affordable mid-range phones have 5G. When you say that, is that just receptivity to the external, the 5G on the carriers? You're saying you democratized it. Can you just break that down? I just mean it's it's going to be cheaper for consumers. So it's really, I think it's now to the point that a consumer doesn't even have to go out and look for a 5G phone. Almost any phone they buy that's a mid-range or higher or higher phone, certainly from Samsung and from some of our competitors as well, it's going to be a 5G phone. So with consumers having 5G in their pocket and the networks supporting it with higher speeds, I think that's when you can start to look to the app innovators to invent new things to do with it. Oh, interesting, yeah. You know, you and I have talked before about when 4G came along, people didn't necessarily imagine ride sharing or social networking, both of which really wouldn't have happened for 4G. And there is something out there that's going to take advantage of the bandwidth of 5G. I personally think it will be something using video where, you know, either augmented reality or telepresence of some kind that you have access to high quality video with low latency from every phone. You've got to be able to stitch together all those people's phones, produce some kind of incredible distributed peer to peer kind of new service. I'm not smart enough to know what it's going to be. But there will be some great new companies launched on top of 5G. I think that 5G is mainstream now in terms of network and devices. 5G services, the killer apps 5G, are going to start really becoming apparent by next year. That's what I'm excited about. Everybody should be excited about that. But, you know, it's interesting. I feel like in some ways it is generational. I actually used my phone and I called someone yesterday, but she was like, wow, I got to do the phone ring. Did it freak you out? (laughs) And then, you know, we had a whole group of people that only text 
They really won't ever like don't want to talk. But now that we've spent a year and a half, you know, on Zoom and WebEx and Google Meet, whatever it is, FaceTime, I think people have adjusted to the idea of actually wanting the screen time, you know, and I have an aunt who's in Spain and I gave her a better model phone last time I was there. I was like, she actually was using a Microsoft phone that I'm pretty sure they would stop supporting in the mid 2000s. I don't know how it was still working. And now she loves to FaceTime me, actually we WhatsApp. And she just, it's like I, she, every week. And it's because the technology is in her hand and it's so much easier. And we've broken that, the old finance barrier of you know this being ex- more expensive. And it's great because she has a new granddaughter and I, I have a new niece. It's just really fun. And I think that now people are, this whole idea of video is going to be, continue to be a big thing. And 5G will obviously make that faster and hopefully more eloquent and we'll all look better. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think you'll be able to do it from anywhere instead of just from somewhere where you have good Wi-Fi. So actually, here's an idea for somebody listening to go invent, and maybe it even exists today, but I think you should be able to be video chatting with someone and at the same time on the same screen, also showing them what you're looking at. So you're using the front facing camera for your own face and the back facing camera for what you're looking at. So you could be like showing your parents your kid's soccer game live and talking to them about it while it's happening. Why not? You know, that should be possible. And one of the main reasons people don't do that is they don't have Wi-Fi at the soccer game. But with 5G, we will have access to that kind of data rate. All right. Soccer parents, they're going to be excited. A lot of, a lot of use of their devices. Yeah. So last thoughts, anything else on the horizon you want to mention? Well, you mentioned earlier in the call our foldable phones. Mm-hmm. And By the time this podcast airs, Samsung will have made a big announcement about that. Uh, We've already, at this point, teased our next unpacked event about our next generation of foldable phones. What I love about those foldables, the the bigger one is the Galaxy Fold series and the smaller one is the Flip series. What I love about those is you can have a big screen like you would have even, you know, with the bigger ones, the fold, it, it's all as big as a small tablet, right? So you can have a big screen, you know, multiple windows open on it, but then you can fold it up and put it in your pocket, which you cannot do with any tablet. I still marvel at it that it doesn't break. <laughs> you guys yeah, are the foldable the foldable screen is an amazing piece of technology. Mm-hmm. And of course, I don't want to contradict anything we might be announcing next week, but I expect those are all going to be 5G. So my big, big hope for both of us is, I mean, I'm happy to see you in Washington, but I really want to see you in Las Vegas at the Consumer Electronic Show when you guys have this amazing showroom floor where you show us all your new gizmos in January. I Absolutely. I look forward to hosting you at our booth, however that works. I'm sure there will be a lot of precautions taken for COVID, but as of right now, they are expecting to have an in-person CES and a, and a robust government policy program. I'm tactile. I like to see those things and play with them. And you've done you've done more in the house electronics than I ever would have thought of. I still love the story when we had an event once and this person was like, this whole thing about you know how you could put things in your washer basically post hitting the button, which is always a problem. It's like, oh, one more thing. And then there was like a water element. They're like, I actually, I give my dog water that way. And I was like, what? <laughs> Yeah, those were both those were both interesting to me because they were not innovations in like that required new physics research or incredible new engineering. Somebody just had to come up with the idea. A little door within the door so you can open the the washer and throw something else in 
That's for a front load washer. Normally you can't open a front load washer once it's full of water because the water would come gushing out. But they put a little door within a door at the top. And then the other one was to put a faucet at the top, you know, effectively a faucet at the top of your top load washer. So you can rinse stuff and pre pre-treat stuff and have the water just go into the tub instead of having to go over to a sink to do it. Those are simple ideas. You know, that's what, I mean, I don't have to tell someone from AEI about how powerful competition is. That's really what drives these breakthroughs is competition. And when there's not competition, companies get lazier. But because this is such a competitive business that we're in, Everybody's constantly having to come up with cool new stuff to get ahead. That's what makes it a fun field to work in. You definitely come up with cool new stuff. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. Shane, it's a pleasure. Fabulous. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.